Good morning. Um, I, uh, the sunglasses on the head look is not one that, uh, that I, uh, do on purpose. I just forget. Jackie Gill walks by and he goes, Hey man, with those glasses on your head, you look like one of those TV preachers. And I went, Hey, thank you for the reminder. So I've taken the glasses off this week and here we are. Um, the, uh, I, I messaged the elders this week and I told them, I said, I know you guys have been super concerned, but, um, but the Barnes family, we're not going to leave over the color of the carpet. We like it. It looks great in here. So, um, we're thankful to be here. This is great, by the way. I love this. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we've watched Paul unfold this masterful defense of the gospel against the Judaizers. Remember, the Judaizers taught a gospel of faith plus works or Jesus plus Jewishness. And I read last week, but John Stott summarized Judaizers theology this way. You must let Moses finish what Christ began, or rather, you must finish Christ's unfinished work. But that's not the gospel. That's heresy. And, the, and the, it's the real kind. It's not the keyboard warrior, you disagree with some secondary or tertiary point of doctrine that I hold, and so you're a heretic. It's not that kind. It's the real kind. Um, it's the kind that Paul asks for the propagators of to be cast straight into hell uh, in chapter 1. The gospel of Jesus is the good news that sinners are justified or saved, that is, brought into right standing with God, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We're justified by God as a gift through faith, through trusting in Jesus, and that's it. In the first 14 verses of chapter 3, we saw Paul begin his argument that justification has always been by faith. The promises God made to Abraham point to justification by faith, and even the law of Moses points to justification by faith. And so in chapter 3, verse 15, uh, Paul says this. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So in verse 15... By the way, uh, that is through verse 22. Uh, I'm four weeks in. This is a far cry from the end of chapter 6. So anyway, there's that. 
Uh, so Paul says in verse 15, to give a human example, my brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. If you enter into a legal agreement with somebody, do either of you have the freedom to cancel or change it later? Of course not. And aren't you glad? Um, I mean, can you imagine life in a world in which agreements could just be annulled or changed willy-nilly at any point later? Think about buying a home. You sign the contract to buy your home. You go to closing, pay the costs, and you get the title. You move in. It's yours. A year later, the previous owner notices, notices that you've built a stunning addition. And so he calls and says, you know, when I saw your new addition and all, I went ahead and made a couple of updates to our contract. Update number one, I'm sure it goes without saying that I'm going to increase the selling price by 70%, so I can make a little bit off the, update, off the update. And update number two is, since you now have plenty of room, I've added a clause that requires you to provide housing for me and my family free of charge. So, hey, I call the master bedroom, see you Friday. Uh, I mean, thank God that's not how contracts work. And especially in Paul's day, once an agreement was formalized, it was a done deal, and there was no going back on it. With that in mind, flip back to Genesis 12, where we find God's promises to Abraham. As a quick aside, I'm not going to do the whole Abraham versus Abram and Sarah versus Sarah thing. I'm just going to call them Abraham and Sarah the whole time, all right? Um, So in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. After receiving these promises, we see in the following verses, verses 4 to 6, that Abraham, Sarah, and Lot packed up all their stuff and began this trek from Haran to Canaan. About 250 miles later, Abraham arrived at Shechem. And from that place, Genesis 12:7 tells us that God said this to Abraham, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. God says to Abraham, Remember that land I said I would show you? This is it. And I'm going to give it to your offspring. Now notice the nature and recipient of the promise or covenant. The nature of that promise is unconditional. There's no if-then statement. If you hold up your end of the deal, then and only then will I hold up mine. That's not there. God's promise was unilateral. It was a one-way promise. It wasn't based on Abraham's performance. God promised and he delivered. But how? Well, that brings us to the recipients of God's promise to Abraham. In Galatians 3.16, the second part, uh, Paul notes that Genesis 12 does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Obviously, Paul knew that God's promise to Abraham had a physical land in view. But even from the beginning, there was obviously much more to it than just a physical land. After all, how would the nations be blessed if the full extent of the promise was just that Israel was going to inherit a land? Um, Answer, they wouldn't be. And that was never the plan. 
Contrary to the teaching of the Judaizers, God's promises uh, to Abraham did not center on the Jews. God's promises weren't ultimately for Abraham's offsprings, plural. They were for his offspring, singular. And who is the recipient of God's promise? Who is that singular recipient? Paul tells us it's Jesus. It's Christ. Jesus is the ultimate recipient of God's promises to Abraham. In fact, Jesus is the ultimate recipient of all of God's promises. Every one of them point to, center on, and find their yes in Jesus. That's 2 Corinthians 1.20. They are all about him. And the law didn't change that. In verses 17 and 18, uh, we find that God didn't give the law to nullify or change his unconditional covenant with Abraham. Those verses say, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. God didn't say, hey, Abraham, I'm definitely going to do all this great stuff for you and your offspring. Definitely going to do it. And then 430 years later say, listen, guys, I know I said I'm definitely going to do all this great stuff for you and your offspring. And trust me, I I am. If you obey all 600 or so of these rules perfectly all the time. Seems reasonable. So Paul reminds the Galatians that if the inheritance God promised to Abraham is based on earning, then it's no longer unconditional. But the inheritance promised to Abraham was given. It was a gift. It was God's unmerited favor or grace. And God doesn't go back on his promises. If the law didn't nullify or even change God's covenant of promise with Abraham, why then did he give it? That's the question there in verse 19. Why then the law? And that's exactly the question the Judaizers would have wanted to know the answer to. Paul, are you telling me that even though I've spent my life obeying the law, memorizing the scriptures, offering the right sacrifices in the right ways on the right days, tithing, praying, and generally keeping the commandments, even though I've done all of that, are you saying I'm no longer, that I'm no more acceptable to God than the Gentiles? who've lived the most godless lives humanly possible? If that's really the case, why did God give the law? Why have I been doing all of this? Do you hear the pride in that question? It's the pride that's natural to us. Doesn't God see how much better I am than those people? Doesn't he see all the good that I've done, how good I am? I mean, surely all of my law-keeping has to count for something, But that kind of thinking not only puts our arrogance on display, but also reflects a total misunderstanding of the nature and purpose of the law. In verse 319, Paul says the law was added because of transgressions. But what does it mean that the law was added because of transgressions? In Romans 520, Paul says this. Now the law came to increase the trespass. So why the law? It was added to expose how sinful and deserving of God's wrath we are. It was added to make crystal clear what the Judaizers miss, that you will not be justified by your works. 
And if you won't be justified by your works, then you only have two options. Join the Judaizers in hell or cast yourself on the mercy of God. Those are the only two options. That's it. And the law was always just temporary. It was on a timer. In verse 19, Paul says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. See, the law started on Mount Sinai and ended on Mount Calvary because the law was intended to point to the need for Christ. Its work was done when he came. So the law was temporal, but the promise is eternal. And not only is the law inferior to the promise, but so also was the mediator of the law inferior to Christ. The law was mediated by the man, Moses, who received it from angels. Now, this was interesting to me this week. I had never noticed this. I looked at that and I thought, the law was given to Moses through angels? I don't remember that. I thought God just gave it. Um, Interestingly enough, um, it was historically understood by Jews. It's even translated this way in various texts in the Septuagint. Um, But uh, this thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the loud trumpet blast from Exodus 19 uh, is pretty widely understood to be a reference to armies of angels. You don't pick that up uh, when you read it uh, in the in the English there or even in the Hebrew. But that is the way it was understood apparently by its recipients. I didn't know that. And so you get to Galatians 3.19, the last part, and verse 20, and you find uh, a difficult text to interpret. Um, He makes that seemingly bizarre um, comment. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I stared at that for a long time. I didn't want to run straight to a commentary for the I stared at that for a long time. Um, And I kind of racked my brain on that and um, didn't get much. Uh, So I went to the commentary. Um, So uh, there were a ton. I probably read, I ended up probably reading 15 commentaries on this. And really they are sort of all over the place. There are a gazillion possible Uh, explanations here here's the one that seems the most reasonable to me the one that seems to make the most sense of it to me Um, paul notes that where the promise was given to abraham firsthand that is directly from god to abraham and eventually directly to man through christ uh, the law was given to the people secondhand from god to angels to moses or possibly even third hand, from God to angels to Moses to the people. So the law is inferior to the promise, and even its delivery implies as much. In the delivery of the law, you see distance between God and people. But in the delivery of the promise, you see God's nearness to his people. There's relationship there that you don't find in the law. Now, verses 21 and 22, in Paul's next question there, he turns from responding to the Judaizers' accusatory questions to ask one of his own. He says, is the law then contrary to the promise? Paul says, hey, Judaizers, God made a promise to Abraham, didn't he? 
And that promise was unilateral. It was one way and unconditional, contingent on nothing, right? So when God gave the law, did he contradict himself? To keep his promise to Abraham, did he give a law that could save? And Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But there was no law that could give life. And that much should have been obvious to the Judaizers. According to Deuteronomy 27:26, a few verses earlier, Paul had reminded the Judaizers that the law they were dying to stay under says this, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Righteousness was not coming through the law, but overwhelming judgment was. Then in verse 22, Paul says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul reveals the connection between the promise and the law. God made unilateral, unconditional promises that Abraham received by faith. Later, God added the law to imprison people under sin to reveal their need for the promise, which is received by faith alone. The law wasn't given to solve our sin problem. It was given to expose our sin problem. The law wasn't given to make us righteous, but to make it painfully obvious that we are not. And if we have no righteousness of our own, what can we do but cast ourselves on the mercy of God? And thank God that in his mercy, he's provided a way for sinners to be saved apart from law keeping. He's made a way for the unrighteous, that is, the sinners, the separated, the cut off, the hopeless, the helpless, and the damned to be justified or counted righteous. And it's through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, when we were in Genesis 12, did you catch what Abraham did when God told him to your offspring, I will give, it, I will give this land? It says that Abraham built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abraham stopped to worship. He gave thanks to the Lord. And when you receive the promise from God that justification is not by earning, but by faith, what other response is there? Let's pray. God, we praise you that justification is through faith in Jesus Christ. God, I praise you for the ongoing and overwhelming argument that Paul lays out here in Galatians. I love how thorough he is. He is bent on dismantling the notion, rescuing us from the idea that we can do something to be justified. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We just cast ourselves on your mercy. We say, Lord, we have sinned and there's no hope for us. There's nothing we can do to change that. We need you to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. God, I praise you that in Jesus, you sent the righteous for the unrighteous. Uh, you have given to us through faith the righteousness 
of your Son. And you've transferred to Him the penalty for our sin so that He who knew no sin became sin so that in Him we might become your righteousness. And so, Lord, we praise You for that. Thank You for loving sinners. Thank You that there's hope for sinners. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.